Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Prognotes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to the Yes album by Yes. And if this is your first time listening to our show, welcome. We like to talk about progressive rock, a fun, exciting, unique subgenre of rock music. And each episode, we dedicate our time to break down and talk about prog rock albums from all over the world, really. Uh, so if you haven't already, please tap that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our future episodes. You can also follow us online everywhere with the link in the description. And lastly, we want to always say thank you to all of our patrons for helping keep prog rock alive and sharing these albums we all love and enjoy. You can become a, pro- a patron by visiting the link in the description or by going to patreon.com slash prognotes. The Yes album is the third studio album by the English prog rock band Yes, released February 19, 1971 under Atlantic Records. Um, this is actually, Drew, also the same day that Paul McCartney released his first debut single as a solo artist following the Beatles' breakup. It was a single wow. called Another Day. I, know that. I don't know if you know that song. I do know, I know that, that song. song. Yeah. yeah. So it was released the yes. same day. It was his very first debut single wow. as, yeah, breaking up from wow. the Beatles. Wow. My own Wilson. That was, that was pretty good. Anyway, um, this album was Yes's first album with all original songs and to feature guitarist Steve Howe, who replaced Peter Banks. Now, some of you might be saying, no, that's not true. Steve Howe played on Time and a Word, the previous album in 1970. And that's actually not true. Uh, by the time that Steve Howe was hired, Time and a Word was completed. And the original album art was considered inappropriate for the American market. So a photograph of the band was used, which Howe was in. He was technically a part of the band at the time. So he's on the cover of Time and a Word, even though he didn't play on it. So, yeah. So this is actually the first album in which Steve Howe plays guitar. And they included a, uh, a nice little acoustic show-off piece for him called Clap, which is the album's shortest song and the only one recorded outside of the London studio where the rest of the LP was made, which was at the Lyceum Theater in London. In fact, Drew, check this out. I didn't realize this. I also found this out. Clap's recording, the recording of it, the live recording, was done on July 17th, 1970, which is the very first live concert that Steve Howe was a part of. The very first yep. concert, right? That was the first one he was a part of with them. Yep. And that's kind of crazy that they took a performance from that. I know. And made it as one of the official tracks uh-huh. on their next album. Yep. Which I, I, I'm... <laughs> I guess maybe if you have like that take, like and you hear the recording afterwards, like that was amazing. That was it. Let's do it. Yep. But dude, <laughs> that's the that's one. That's the one. But I, I, that's still just incredible to me. It kind of blows the, the my mind. The first live performance... And they're like, that's so good. That's going on the next album. Not a live album. That's going on the next studio album. Yeah, it's nuts. And it was funny, too, because I looked up how long the, the tour was. Now, of course, the tour happened after the album's release, too. They had they were playing shows before the album, and they were playing the ones after. But they played 160, they had 169 performances on the, on the tour for this album. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, dang. And they chose the first one. To put that mm-hmm. on the, I was like, "Wow, that's that's pretty incredible." In fact, do you know? Because uh, you you know you live in L.A. Do you have do you know of a venue called Whiskey a Go Go? Yeah, you know that never actually been never actually but been I know there. of it. Yeah. So I, yeah. while I was looking up some of the information on the tour, I found out that they played this album 
there at Whiskey A Go Go in 1971. Whiskey A Go Go is a very popular venue. I think it, it very much was. I mean, it's still popular today, but I don't hear like people of my generation being like, "Let's go to the whiskey, go to the whiskey." Right. But I think I've heard it a lot in the past during this kind of, uh, you know, musical just revolution back in the late 60s right yeah and mid to late 60s right with with all the the hippie movement going on like i think the whiskey a go-go was a very popular place for a lot of really creative music and a lot of emerging acts at that time yeah so that's pretty cool they reference it in mad men oh they do that's anything they do yeah. when megan and don they go out to la and then oh wow she goes, so she, she's with one of her friends who's uh, either from montreal or france or something okay like that. i'm assuming montreal because that's where her character's from and she's she's like oh where are you guys going tonight the you know don's kids asks yep. that and they're all dressed up and she goes uh the whiskey a go-go yeah anyways that's pretty cool all right fun little and now you know fun now people fun have fact. some fun facts about mad men. fun fact about bad men right there Oh, this section is so crazy. Oh, it's an excellent section. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to get ready for it to pan to my left ear here in a second so I yes, can, so I can actually the... hear myself talk. <laughs> um, so this is also the last album to feature keyboardist Tony K until 90125, which was released in 1983. Um, in fact, Tony K just actually released a solo album in 2021, which is fairly close to the time that we're recording this, we're in 2022 now, called End of Innocence. So uh, I checked it out. I listened to it. I don't know if you heard any of this, Drew. But if you're, no, I have not. If you're a fan of uh, cinematic soundscapes, I'd recommend it to you. Um, it's not groundbreaking, in my opinion, but it had some cool, you know, some cool stuff on it. Really, sure. but anyway... Uh, End of Innocence, yeah. Did a solo album. I was, and I think it was his very first one, too, which is why I was like, oh, wow. Okay, well, cool. Um, man, I'm having a hard time think with all this chaos going around in this song. I know. There's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, other personnel. These, these guys, you know, these were the pioneers of prog rock, and exactly prog rock has right. a lot of stuff going on. Okay, there we go. Now I feel a little bit better. Uh, other personnel at the time were John Anderson with an H, because he didn't drop the H until Fragile. So I have the I have the vinyl literally right here, and it says John wow, John Anderson. That's a fun fact. I did not yep, know that. John Anderson with an H. He didn't drop the H until Fragile, uh, the next album. Wow. And so, uh, yep. And he's I didn't know that. Yeah, he's he's playing percussion, bringing lead vocals. We got Chris Squire rounding out the bottom on bass and vocals, and then Bill Bruford on drums. Uh, other personnel outside of the band also include Colin Goldring on recorder. The Yes album clocks in around 41 minutes of music across six songs on their first two albums. Uh, no song runs longer than six minutes, but here, half of the LP's tracks reached the nine-minute mark. So, big shift. Uh, big shift in members, big shift in the sound, the style, all original. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's a lot. Um, it was produced by Eddie Offord. And, of course, Stephen Wilson had to get his hand into this cookie jar. Uh, so yep. he did a Blu-ray remix of it in 2014 that you can find online at uh, BurningShed.com for, for one place. He did a 5.1 surround sound from the original Studio Masters. And from the reviews that I've seen on this thing, it sounds pretty incredible. And I would understand why with how many different layers of stuff that's going on in this record and how John Anderson's vocals can be mixed. I'd love to hear it. I just don't have a 5.1 surround set up currently. Yeah, um, no, that would be super fun. It would be cool. Uh, 
But anyway, that's a little fun thing if anybody's interested in that. Uh, we're also listening to the 2008 remaster on the show for the sake of popularity. Uh, if you were to find this album on streaming services like Spotify or whatever, uh, this mastering is most likely the version that you'll be hearing. So this is the, the version that we're going to be doing a review and, and listening to. So uh, but before we get into our thoughts uh, on the record and what you and I thought, what was the... Uh, general public's response to all of these new changes happening in the band drew um well this was a very well received album uh this is we're going back here our our most our more recent episodes have been more modern it's true we haven't gone this far back in a while i think i feel i know this is going really really back This this is a foundational album i think for for prog rock in general so um this reached number seven in the Dutch charts, number four in the UK, number 40 in the US, number 20 in Australia, number 46 in Canada. Um, so it, uh, you know, it had some popularity. As of now, uh, it's certified platinum in the US. So a million copies have been sold of this in the US. Wow. And in the UK, it's silver, 60,000 copies sold. Um, on Prague Archives, it has an aggregate score of 4.31 out of 5 stars from th- over 3,000 ratings. 50% gave it a score of 5 out of 5, a perfect score. 38% gave it a 4 out of 5. So 88% of listeners seem to think that this, this album is pretty great. Huh. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty, pretty, high, pretty percentage. high percentage. Yeah. Um, I mean, and a fairly high number of voters with, you know, and ratings too. You know, 2112 has uh, a little over 2200, at least right now, um, ratings. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon has, you know, 4,500. So, and I mean, and that's a, that's a huge album, right? Oh, yeah. Um, everyone's going to vote on that. Uh, Porcupine Trees in Absentia has 2600, a little okay. over that. So, um, remind me how many this one has? Still pretty high. This one has uh, 3,000. Oh, wow. Okay. 3,135. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I guess a little over 3,100. Uh, Close to the Edge actually is a bit more popular, and we'll get into that. Um, we've already, you know, covered. Yeah. Have we covered that? Yeah. We have. Yeah. Okay. Because I knew we did Fragile. It's we been also a minute. Close to it's the been edge. a minute since we've done a Yes yeah, album. It's been a while. I mean, it was, it's been a while. But yes, we have years. done Close to the Edge. And Fragile. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Way back in the day. Yeah. Way back, that was our third episode. Um, how, but close to the edge has a little higher of a score of four point six seven as opposed to this, which is four point three one. I think that's pretty much the general consensus. There is that the close close to the edge is is a better album I mean, than the yes album. And I'm I'm totally on the bandwagon for that. Man. <laughs> I'm definitely a part of the eighty eight percent that that you know. I am does, part of the eighty eight. Yeah, we love this record. Absolutely, we love this record. I wonder what and I, you said this a minute ago, but you were saying that. You know, it sells. It sold a million copies in the United States, which makes it platinum. Now, I'm assuming that's based off of population, right? What would the equivalent of a platinum album be in the UK? Like, how many how many albums do you have to sell in the UK? I don't know. Part of me thinks that it's. I guess it's. It might be the same scale. It might be the same well, scale. I mean, based on popularity, or not popularity, but like population. I mean. Like, is that even what do you mean based on pop? It's just like if it reaches this thing, it 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 is like it's an absolute scale, you know what I mean? Like, in terms of record sales, yeah. So, like, if they sold if a million it's... copies in the US, it's platinum. If they sold a million copies in the UK, it's also platinum. 
Yeah, that's what I would really? assume. Really? Okay. I guess I should I don't know. Do I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking it up. Anyway, You're going to look this I'm up. I'm going to look it up. You can And I'll keep going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was really well. <laughs> Look how prepared we are. Um, this is on the fly. I just want to know. I, um, yeah, this was very well received um, record back in the day. Um, and I will just give a couple of sound bites here. In 2018, Louder Sound did give it an aggregate score of 8.27 out of 10 from 145 voters. And part of this article said, the trippy trinity of yours is no disgrace, I've seen all good people, and Starship Trooper stand as evergreen yes masterworks. Your ears enter them through fresh windows and doorways every time, even over four decades later. Yeah. Um, I like that. Tri- what did you say? The tri- trippy... Trippy trinity. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's a good. fun phrase. Totally. Um, I'll, I'll give some more reviews. They're... they're there are a lot, but what, you kind of mentioned some of the history of this, but I, th- I think it's fascinating, so we'll do it. So one of the reviewers who gave it a perfect score, five out of five, yep. on Prague Archive said, this album would mark a turning point for the band, as this is considered to be their first classic, quote-unquote, album by most fans. Band's lineup remains the same as their previous album, except with one notable addition. Guitarist Steve Howe, who had joined the band during the tour and promotion of Time in a Word, replaced Peter Banks in 1970. This would also be the last album to feature keyboardist Tony Kay until the release of 1983's 90125, as you already alluded yes. to. During this album in particular, the band begins to take on a more progressive approach to their music. At the time, Yes was, a risk, was at risk of being dropped by Atlantic Records due to the commercial failures of their first two albums. However, instead of taking their music in a more accessible direction to reach a wider audience, they doubled down and made their most progressive album they had released so far. This album is a huge leap forward when compared to their two prior studio releases. Not to mention, there are so many iconic moments found throughout the album, it becomes difficult to sort out which would be the most iconic moment out of all of them. In addition, this was the first album to not feature any cover songs, which illustrates the band's beginning to mature as songwriters. You had already mentioned that, Dustin. The Yes album was a critical success and a major commercial breakthrough for the band. So that was kind of a review. It was also kind of a history lesson. It is kind Um, of alluding to the 2112 thing, though, as you mentioned kind of early. I was about to say. But it's that um, same sort of like, no, we're just going to do whatever we want to do kind of thing. Yeah. And I'll get into that a little bit later because I I could go on and on about that. But um, I also have an answer on on this whole platinum album. Oh, please, please update us. Okay. So so you have the RIAA, which is in America, right? Now, if you. Okay. Yeah. That is the. It's not an absolute scale. Whoever, right? They say right. uh, so uh, a million, American. a million sales for platinum. Now in uh-huh. the UK, there is the Brit certified awards, which is actually sure. 300,000, 300,000 units are required to achieve gotcha. a platinum certification. Yeah. Which makes sense. I don't know why I thought it was absolute. That was my cop out answer. Cause I didn't actually know anything more. <laughs> well, now we know, but that does make sense because the population is, is much less. Yeah. I mean, so 300,000 has... copies in the UK certifies it platinum. Yeah. Right. So well, now we know. Now we know. So sixty thousand when this came out. Yep, I think um, that would be a guess. Or not when it came out. As of now. Yeah. So anyway, so it's more. But it's yeah. definitely more of an American market breakthrough, uh, because most of their tour, most of their shows that they did were in the UK, uh, and and also the surrounding countries. Um, but mm-hmm. I find it interesting that um, this album actually broke into the American market. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that 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 as of is like the as of now. You know what I mean? Sure. It's not like when it first came out, it got like a million sure. immediately. Yeah, you know, no, this is over definitely. decades, yeah. right? So, 
Anyways, um, all music reviewer Bruce Eater gave the album a four out of five, stating, on Yes's first two albums, Yes, 1969, and Time and a Word, 1970, the quintet was mostly searching for a sound on which they could build, losing one of their original members, guitarist Peter Spank. Spanks. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm tired, clearly. Peter Spanks. Wow, I should have, should have done some vocal exercises before, before this. Wow. Peter Spanks. That is busted. I love that. Okay. Losing one of their original out of the band. guitarists. Peter Banks in the process. Their third time out proved the charm. The Yes album constituted a de facto second debut, introducing the sound that they would carry that would carry them forward yeah. across the next decade or more. Gone are any covers of outside material. The group now working off of its own music from the ground up. A lot of the new material was actually simpler in linear structure, at least, than some of what the uh, than some of what the of what had appeared on their previous albums, but the internal dynamics of their playing had also altered radically, and much of the empty space that had been present in their earlier recordings was also filled up here. Suddenly, between new members Steve Howe's odd mix of country and folk-based progressive guitar, and the suddenly liberated bass work and drumming of Chris Squire and Bill Bruford, respectively, the group's music became extremely busy. And lead singer John Anderson, supported by Squire and Howe, filled whatever was left, almost to overflowing. Anderson's soaring falsetto and the accompanying the accompanying harmonies attached uh, uh, sorry, attached to haunting melodies drawn from folk tunes as often as rock, applied to words seem- seemingly derived from science fiction and all delivered with the bravura of an operatic performance by the band as well as the singer proved a compelling mix. What's more, despite the busyness of their new sound, the group wasn't afraid to prove that less could sometimes be more. Three of the high points were the acoustic-driven Your Move, which is the first section of I've Seen All the People, and Clap. A superb showcase yeah. for how on solo acoustic guitar. And, relatively low-key, a venture. The Yes album did what it had to do, outselling the group's first two long, play, uh, long players and making the group an established presence in America, where, for the first time, they began getting regular exposure on FM radio. Sad to say, the only aspect of the Yes album that didn't last much longer was Tony Kay on keyboards. His Hammond organ holds its own in the group's newly energized sound and is augmented by piano and other instruments when needed, but he resisted the idea of adding the Moog synthesizer, that hot instrument of the moment, to his repertoire. The band was looking for a bolder sound than the Hammond organ could generate, and after some initial rehearsals of material that ended up on their next album, he was dropped from the lineup to be replaced by Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long review, but it was kind of a history lesson as well. But he was talking about how the band had progressed, and that was something that people responded to. That was a positive response from a lot of people. And you know what? It's it's kind of this kind of great, beautiful, happy ending that you want in the sense that that's what they had kind of even set out to do. They, I mean, you know, they were still trying to figure out what they were. A lot of bands do when they're first starting out. Yeah. And to figure out where they kind of fit in and what they want to do. And that comes with time, just getting to know each other. And as your perspectives change as just a person, but also as a musician in that sphere as well. And I think that this person in this review said it really well. They were trying to search for the first two albums, what they were doing. Um, and they had influences that they shared and they put that on the record with some covers, right? They did a Beatles song. Um, and I think they did one by, uh, what was it? Buffalo Springfield and then the birds. So they, they, they kind of had their hand in a, a couple of the, the early uh, pop slash rock and roll yeah, uh, group groups. Um, I mean, the Buffalo Springfield is kind of a jazzy sort of influence hmm. as well. Yeah. So they had a wide array of, of influences, and um, they they took it forth and and really made something 
really unique with it. And sorry, I, I don't want to drift too much in the history because we'll get to that later. But as far as just the reception of it that goes, people were noticing that this was, uh, there was just a lot of really interesting elements here. And they knew it too. I mean, you know, and that's what they were looking for. They wanted to do something different and they did. And people were like, oh, this is really, really cool. We're getting some kind of raucous parts like we're listening to right now, right? Yeah. Don't, 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 right? These big hits. But then you've also got, you know, like they mentioned in there, the the acoustic pieces from Steve Howe. I mean, that's just a, a really cool thing to introduce in all of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, very positively received, um, both back in the day and now. This is a fantastic record for anyone who's interested in progressive rock. To, And I think that it's actually not... It kind of has that, that still early sound, whereas Close to the Edge, as much as I love it, and it's still probably my favorite... Um, that really, it has the Rick Wakeman aspect to it. So it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot More. if you're not used to progressive rock at all. Um, and I love it, right? But if you're kind of wanting to, to dip your, your toes into the pool, I think this would actually be a pretty good one because there's a lot, like almost all of the classic prog rock elements are in there. Oh, definitely. But but it's not too much and it's grounded with a lot of... Um, it's it's a grounded record. I think that's a, a, a big part of it because there are moments like adventure and you know and clap and these things that just give it kind of an earthier feel. Yeah, I mean that's the I don't know. Yeah, well, it definitely uh, maybe it's feels, the organ uh, too, right? Uh, but also too the just the 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 runtime of the record being at forty one minutes. It's not a little. Uh, it's not overwhelming, um, and it's also separated into smaller tracks. Even though you have like. You know, Starship Trooper with the three parts, and I've seen all good people with the two part. You know, they have the two part sections and whatever, but they you could still digest each individual song rather than being uh, thrown a 25, 20, 19 minute long song like that you would get from right. something like Supper is Ready, twenty one twelve, even close to right, the edge. Right. Um, yeah, and so yeah, that's kind of even though they're. Some of them are long, but I don't think any of them hit the the ten minute mark. I think they all remain around yeah under yeah. under ten minutes. I think it's a little bit more yes. uh, approachable and digestible for that. So yeah, yeah, I sure. would agree with you. But it makes sense. Yeah, I think I think the the history of it is really interesting too. And again, that we were talking about the parallels to twenty one twelve. If you haven't heard that episode, please go check it out. It's our very first one. Oh man, I, um, I can't even imagine how bad it is going back and just thinking about it. It's actually pretty good. I think I heard it the other day. Is it actually Wasn't okay? It okay. It's actually pretty it's fun. Actually good. Okay. I you mean, know, I know I had fun. You get to know we had us. Fun doing it, but you you, you get to know us a little bit. I think that you, you want to get to know your host. <laughs> Do you want to? No, seriously. But uh, um, Rush in you know with twenty one twelve. If you don't know the story, it was very similar in that their their the previous album. What had not done well commercially, and they were in danger of getting rocked from the record company. Yeah, um, and this is very similar. But with with that, they did the same thing where they were like, "Look, no, our music is our music, right? This isn't about the business of music for us, right? We're artists. That's what that's who we are at the end of the day. We're artists, and we're going to write what what we feel. And what we feel is we want to explore, and we want to kind of break. We want to do what King Crimson's doing. Right. It <laughs> might not be received well right but we're gonna do it anyways and that was kind of an anthemic you know statement from from rush back in the day um now granted that was that was after yes but um 
yes, had a, I think a similar attitude, um, maybe not as vehement in a way, but it was this, I think it was almost kind of like ignoring this kind of push from other people to be like, oh, what if you did this? Or, or what if you kind of made it more accessible by this? I don't think it was necessarily a big middle finger. It wasn't as defiant in nature, at least as I associate kind of a defiant nature, sure. defiant nature with, with 2112. But it was this kind of like, I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're just, that's not what we're about. That's not what we're going to do. And like you said, Destin, you interjected with, we want to be like King Crimson. I think I mentioned this on some of the other yes record episodes we did. But, you know, they, they were very inspired by King Crimson and by a lot of the other um, kind of more explorative progressive not only musical mindsets but also just um cultural mindsets that was starting to kind of pervade and, and seep into the psyche of a younger generation during the day in the late 60s with the flower child movement the counterculture revolution all that kind of stuff um you know john is john anderson who you know the vocalist of the group um who wrote i think most if not all the lyrics as well he's very flighty and you can tell not just in his it's really, it's funny how it reflects oh, in his voice. Oh, yeah. His voice is so, it soars. His voice soars. It is very much like a bird. It's very light. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing no. like John Anderson's voice. But it's, it you know, it's elevated, right? It's elevated above everything else. It just soars above. But to me, that also kind of coincides with kind of a flighty headspace. I think that's kind of how he yeah, is. Yeah, he's, um, he's a hippie. But, but it makes sense. He's very much a hippie. Yeah. And he was very much into that whole... It still is, I think, that whole kind of mentality, um, peace, love, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, which is great. I'm not denigrating that. I'm not trying uh -huh. to at all. But that was this big movement of free love and everything. And he was all into that. And you, you definitely hear that on this record. Uh, but I think that that's something they wanted to do. You know, he was ensconced in that kind of progressive cultural mentality, too. And that obviously was going to find its way into the music as well, where it was progressing into something a little bit different let's explore some new territories um but still kind of having that retaining this this peaceful demeanor because i think that's what a lot of the record is um this is not a dark not a particularly dark prog rock no. record of which there are several yeah this one is very much it's i think it's actually very unique in the sense that it is kind of hippie-ish i don't i don't associate hippie culture per se with prog rock I usually in, uh, associate kind of like intelligentsia or sci-fi or yeah. fantasy or whatever. Yeah. Or like, I was about to say, Pink Floyd probably dives into that realm a little bit more yeah. than something like Pink Yes. Pink Floyd's kind of darker. Um, and I love both. I love both for different reasons. Yep. But Yes is very much uh, kind of hippie flower child type of deal because of John Anderson's voice um, and the, the harmonies. In it. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's absolutely oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but... I just think that uh, it's funny, and I think it's interesting that this this did this this was received so well. The fact that Yours Is No Disgrace and Starship Trooper uh, became pretty popular and were played on the radio. It got radio play. Well, even even Your Move uh, from yes. uh, I've seen all good people. From I've seen. All I think good that people. was like their yeah. first top forty single. In, yeah, well, in the U.S., it's a brilliant piece, and. Maybe part of the success to that is, I mean, it was great in and of itself, but also part of the success may have come from the fact that um, it, it also incorporates John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance in there mm. as well. Um, in the background, they're saying, and all we are saying is give peace a chance. It's kind of chanted in the background. There. Oh. Um, 
Have you never noticed that? I don't think I've never really associated. Yeah, with, yeah actually. I yes, no, they they straight copy. That's not. They're not wow. trying to be coy about it at all. No, it is. They were very much inspired by again the hippie movement and John. You know his big anthem, yep. the "Give Peace a Chance." Anyways, uh, yeah, uh, I think that's uh, that's a great history of them. And then going a little bit more into that, the whole Tony K. It's it's a shame that he didn't stay. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say shame. It, it, I guess it's unfortunate. You know, it's sad when anyone departs. And same with Peter Banks. Don't want to give him any. You mean Spanks? Uh, shade. Throw any. Yeah, I don't want to throw shade to Spanks. <laughs> um, uh, you know, great musicians, right, in and of themselves. But you know, progressive rock progresses, right? And they they wanted to do something that was beyond the scope of both Tony K and Peter Banks. Um, and yeah, you know, Steve Howe was absolutely the right addition to this group because oh, that yeah. is a an iconic hallmark of this record in particular, but the yes sound in general, but but this this record in particular, because it was the first one, right? This is the one where they're really breaking out of the box and man, it really breaks out of the box right when he comes in. He's not shy about any of this stuff. He comes out doing a a wide array or showcasing a wide array of playing styles, which is crazy um, for one person to do and just one guitar. Like that's, that's really great. Um, And the whole thing with Tony K is he, I think, was a bit, it sounds to me from what I've researched, to be a bit of a purist of the Hammond organ. Mm. Um, and and also the conflict between keyboard and guitars, which is not new. We've talked about that with Rush. There was a bit of conflict in the 80s with Alex and then Getty yeah. wanting to utilize more synthesizers. Right. And like, well, is that overshadowing? They're both melodic instruments. They both carry melody at the forefront along with vocals, yep. right? But who's going to get more screen time, right? Yeah. Who's going to get more time and more attention. And, um, I think there was a bit of, uh, conflict. Obviously I wasn't there in the room, uh, during these band meetings or rehearsals or whatever, but I think that, Oh, well, I mean, if you, if you reference to the, the Redbeard interview and thinking yes. about what they did with close to the edge and right. how bad, not bad, but just, and it, I feel like it seems like even from the start, it was just sort of like the, the egos and the personalities yeah. of yeah. every single one of them. I mean, freaking right. <laughs> Bill Bruford oh, yeah. <laughs> compares oh, yeah. John Anderson to Jeez. a Nazi. To, <laughs> to, yeah. like, to, Hitler. to the right of Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great mean, episode. So- Go check out our Close to the Edge episode. Everyone. Oh my um, gosh, it's so well, funny. When Tony, but... Tony K, I don't think he knew that it was going to be like this. He had actually seen Steve Howe play in a band called Bodak. Yes. A couple of years earlier. Yep. And he was like, well, from what I remember, the, that was much more raunchy rock and roll, pretty straightforward, pretty aggressive guitar. Yeah. Right. And so I, I guess he just kind of expected that to kind of be what Steve Howe would bring to the group. And I think John Anderson and Steve started to get to talking. And John Anderson was, again, was very flighty, very explorer, you know, experimental and ex- explorative. He was like, Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do jazz? Can you do all this? And I think, you know, that just kind of encouraged Steve to kind of, step out into a lot of these different things and skills that he already knew how to do, but he was feeling more comfortable in exploring different, you know, these territories um, and really showcasing them a bit more. Yeah. So and it's interesting. I find it interesting to note too, is that um, from also the Redbeard interview, it also states that John Anderson knew Tony K before uh, hmm. all of the band and everything got put together. And so the addition was actually because of a prior relationship. And so, right. So I find it interesting just because I'm wondering, you know, you, you get the thing, you, you think about it. You're like, okay, you know, you got this guy, John Anderson, and I don't know what he was like at the time, but I mean, we know what his approach was like and what he enjoyed doing. Right. 
Um, and I just find it interesting. It, you know, he agreed to it, you know? He agreed yeah. to be in a part of it, but I guess, yeah. I mean, I like the sound of of Tony K on this record. I really enjoy I, I I always find it I always find it interesting to imagine what Wakeman would have done to this album. Right. And honestly, I just love it the way that it is. Like I love it because because it is what it is. Like it, it Again, doesn't... and that's why I was saying I think that this kind of has an earthier feel to it. It's more grounded, and I think that it's because it doesn't have Rick Wakeman. And I'm not throwing shade on Rick Wakeman. I love what he does. Yeah, uh, but it's I, different. I love it's fragile, different but it's in a different super way. Different. It's very busy. Yes, it is very busy, right? And that's some of that stuff I love. But this just has a great, unique quality of having a lot of insanely awesome progressive elements, um, without having like the keys be necessarily the focal point, which yes. kind of was a a a a common thread between a lot of the early pioneers and what yep. would go on to be progressive rock. Um, but this one is still 100% progressive rock. Like, I don't think you can deny that when listening to it, but it is kind of weird that you say that, that, you know, you're like, Oh, this is a prog rock album. Because when you do, you kind of expect going in to be some pretty heavy keyboards. And on this, it's, it's basically just the Hammond organ yeah. for the most part. I mean, it's, you've got piano and adventure, but you know what I mean? Yep. Like most of it is just the Hammond organ, which that, that, which was that popular. organ brings in sort of a, a, a more brooding, uh, it does darker element and tone to it, which could bring that kind of earth. Oh yeah. Brooding dark or, or, or maybe, uh, sometimes not necessarily that though. It can be for that, but, but sometimes, um, I would say just grandiose. I wouldn't say it's, it's like dark, but like there are moments where I'm like, this doesn't make me feel intimidated. Yeah. Sometimes it does, but this section right here doesn't make me feel intimidated. It makes me feel just like, this is awesome. Like literally awe inspiring, you know, like, Oh, you know, this big majestic cause it's an organ. It reminds me of like church and cathedral, you know, large sound to it. Large, 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 expansive, large. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. That's good. So anyways, I love Tony K on this record, but it's funny. I I heard some other, another podcast talk about this record. And one of the things they had said at the beginning was I feel kind of bad for Tony K on this record (laughs) 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 because he's, you know, because he's, He's surrounded by all these other like insane musicians. Not that he's not talented, but you know, they're definitely demonstrating their they're showcasing their skills a bit more obviously. Obviously, yeah. yeah, than, yeah. than he is. But it just made me laugh that one of the, they said, I feel kind of bad for him. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. That's so um you know. Destin, yeah. I, I I guess I, I was saying you, you said that this is your favorite rest yes record. Yes. And I, I, yes, I <laughs> thought that was just really interesting because, you know, when you think of yes, most people, I would say, would think of their, their, their two, probably their two most popular records are probably the two that come after this fragile and close to the edge. Yeah. Um, and those both have Rick Wakeman on that. So I just find it interesting that this, you like this even more than, than the iconic yeah. yes sound. Most people would say that close to the edge is, is better than fragile. And I think it really just came down to the solo pieces. Um, I don't think that those translated a hundred percent with every listener. Yeah. Uh, there's some yeah. that are really great. I mean, I love mood for oh, a great. day and I love the fish, Yeah, you know, but, uh, I love, we have heaven. Exactly. It's a, oh, it's a great song, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah. it was just these like little, I don't know. I think it was, uh, yes. the solo but pieces, got 5% for nothing. 5% for nothing if you haven't listened to the fragile episode you gotta go check that out this that was one of the funniest moments of that entire episode that drew was describing bill bruford <laughs> saying they're taking five percent for nothing oh my gosh <laughs>
Anyway, so uh, I, I do love the the inclusion of clap. Um, the biggest thing uh, with with fragile and for this one uh, for the Yes album was just really I enjoyed the song structures. Um, I, like Cons and Brahms. I mean, you have Roundabout. It's great, but it's not as, because the album has those individual tracks, it's not as collaborative as the Yes album. And the collaborative Yes sound is what I believe is, is <laughs> at least in this era, the best. Like they are amazing. Okay. Yeah. And so right. I think that the collaborative nature of the Yes album, even though it has the inclusion of Clap, still the other five tracks uh, surpass uh, the collaborative nature of, of, uh, of Fragile as a whole. Well, I just wanted to say, I wanted to bring this up uh -huh. because this is one of the, the fun facts here. And oh. we've mentioned the title of it a couple of times. And I'm sure you already know this because you looked into it. Um, I I didn't know this before researching this this episode uh, for, for, for this album. Okay. Uh, clap. We are referring to it as Clap. That is apparently the name of the song. Yes. Now, now I did not know that it was called Clap. I thought it was The Clap. Yep. The clap. Because that's what is printed. That's what was printed back in the day. If you look at the jacket. Yep. I have it on, in my on hand the vinyl, right now. He has it in his hand right now. It is called the clap. And for years and years and years, literally, I say for years, literally just to like two weeks ago, literally to like three weeks ago, I was like, it's the clap. It's the clap. Yep. I didn't know why it was called the clap other than maybe like you can kind of clap along to it. I think that was the intention of it. But the, as, as I'm sure you're listening to this, you're like, okay, the clap. If I, uh -huh. I don't know if that translates to all nations, but here in the U.S., the clap is a term, a slang term for a sexually transmitted disease called gonorrhea. Yep. So it was always kind of funny that it's like, okay, there's a song called The Clap. It has nothing to do with that. Like you no. could not in, no. in, infer any sort of like sexual connotation of that song. It's just a great, amazing acoustic guitar piece by Steve Howe. Yep. It's amazing. But, it's fantastic. But John Anderson doesn't really help at the intro of the song. No, he doesn't. I was about to say. And yes. the reason <laughs> is also help. not only is the misprint, but at the beginning there's they, – they, they do like a couple seconds right before he starts the guitar. It's a live performance. And John Anderson says into the microphone, he has a song called The Clap. Here's a song called The Clap. And so everyone thought it was The Clap. Well, you know, you'll you'll find people freaking out over this in forums, being like, it's The Clap. No, it's not. It's just Clap. Well, why is it? You know, prog rock fans can be very argumentative. <laughs> um, I went on a forum looking at this stuff. I'm like, wow, there's so much acrimony here. Why are you so angry, guys? It's okay. Like, it's it's going to be all right. It's the title of a song, and we all agree it's a fun song. So stop freaking out about being right. It's like, fine. This is just, it's okay. You know, it's gonna be okay, guys. Um, but uh, yeah, but apparently this was this was a misprint by the record company, and apparently I think Steve Howe is a little upset with that. Which again makes sense if your song is confused with an STD. That's, <laughs> here's here's I'd be worse. a little annoyed by that. Here's I'd be pretty miffed if, if your song was misprinted and compared hey, to dude, an STD. Hey, <laughs> dude, you got the clap. Um, oh my gosh! Here's what's even funnier too is that I found I've this got out. The song. Uh, a little, a little fun fact also about that song is that the song, uh, according to Hal, was written to celebrate the birth of his son Dylan. Oh my word! I know. And and August. 4th, I did not know that. August fourth, nineteen sixty nine, was when his okay, son was then born. Okay, I would be really upset. Oh yeah. <laughs> the song is to celebrate wow. the birth of to his celebrate, son. Celebrate, but instead. Instead. It's an STD. An STD. 
instead wear a rubber because you don't want the clap. Oh my god! Oh um, god! I wonder. I hope Dylan. I mean, he plays drums, and I think he's done some tours with 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 Yes. So I th- I think he doesn't hold much resentment over the fact that his dad called him an STD. Um, sure. So I think he's okay. Sure. <laughs> Dad, if, was I a mistake? No, but you were an STD. You were an STD. Oh my God, it's so. I, I wouldn't call that a mistake, but uh, yeah. You know, I find it it's a result. I find it interesting too, just because of Steve Howe. Just how like his his inspirations, like you know, he has Wes Wes Montgomery, um, but people like Chet Adkins that yes, he and I think that was a pulls in yeah. his inspirations, and mm-hmm. and I find this so interesting because I feel like most of the people, oh, maybe not most of the people, but prog rock has gotten. Prog rock has some many fine guitar players. Uh, oh yeah, great guitar oh, yeah. players um, who who studied musicians like right. Wes Montgomery and right. uh, you know John McLaughlin, George Harrison, Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. these yeah. people right from the sixties. But I find it interesting that Hal also listened to like these flat pickers of like the American yeah. like Appalachian yeah. music, and that's yeah. so unique. That's so it unique is. to any. It's it's kind of like Jethro Tull's like folk thing with the flute. Like yes. the flute of Yes is Steve Howe's like Appalachian pedal steel guitar. Yeah. Thing Again, going. going back to the word I used earlier, the earthier. Yes, feel. Most it's definitely. more rooted. It's more grounded. It's it's eclectic 100%. and and it's this yeah. this like it's very emblematic of of Yes as as a whole. Like yeah. it's diverse. Yeah. And how they and integrated inclusive. it, and yeah. yeah, how how yeah, they integrated yeah. it, made it work together, and absolutely, um, and a lot of it's not really on display for the purpose of showing off. Like it's not a, you know, it's not a shredder type kind of thing. No. You know, it's it's no, just it is more very a, impressive when you hear the clap. Yeah, most definitely. But it's also not a shredder. No, no. You know, I, I guess you don't have that distortion on there or whatever. But it is a lot of notes. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of notes. But I don't know. It doesn't come off as too gaudy to me or no. too showy no and even even uh, in the other tracks even outside of clap it's well all of it is uh another really fun fact so okay so just at the end of the day people listening it is technically called clap though you will probably see it printed as the clap, the clap and just so you know probably. it was intended to be called clap just so you all know <laughs> um just another so. Fun fact is that in the 2003 deluxe edition of this, in the studio version, they did do a studio recording of this, of Clap. Part of Mood for a Day is incorporated, um, which is, that's that's a track, Mood for a Day is a track yep. off of Fragile, oh, Fragile, their next album in 1971. Um, same year. Uh, I, I guess they were like, you, you didn't do that in the live version that we put on the Yes album. It's pretty cool. And he was like, yeah. Maybe I'll add that to the intro for Mood for a Day. Um, I'm not sure how it happened. Huh. I like to think it was something like that. But it is interesting. when you, uh, If you listen to it, you can look this up online. The 2003 studio version of Clap. Um, there's a middle section in there, and it is, it's Mood for a Day. It's the beginning of Mood for a Day. It's pretty interesting. Anyways, I, I, I thought it would be interesting to, to give some, some thoughts on the band as well. We were talking about, here's just a really quick point I wanted to bring up. Uh, the Redbeard interview on this, there, there's a part where Chris Squire says, when he's kind of talking about the early developments of Yes and how they were getting their success and all that kind of stuff. Mm. We may have mentioned this before. Sorry if it's a repeat. If this is your first time listening to us, then it won't be. Anyways, I must. he says, I must say it was down to the energy 
of Bill Bruford. Initially, any band is only as active and creative and as good as its drummer. That's mm. where it all starts. Destin, as the drummer, do you agree with this? Uh, I certainly agree from a uh, production standpoint. If your drums sound like yeah. crap, your whole band's going to sound like crap. Yeah. Now, from the performance perspective, um, I-, I could agree from uh, from history uh, because that was the exact same reason for uh, the inclusion and the propel of Porcupine Tree in 2002 with an absentia. Yes, when Steven, and that's where I was going with exactly, this, Exactly. When Steven picked up Gavin Harrison, it it changed everything for them in terms of their new sound, what they could do, where they could go. So um, I don't have enough experience to be able to speak to that, to know like, oh, this is just going to be better. But from history, this is the second time I've seen this happen, at least in the prog rock realm. So I, I guess there's, yeah, there's probably a little bit of truth into it. There's also yeah. some exclude. I, I guess it's not a... Uh, uh, an all-around rule, but um, well, you do see lots of examples of it, though. Yeah, I mean, you do. With Rush, it's true. right? It's true. You have Neil Peart come in as a new drummer, and yep. he really took them off to a different place. Honestly, same thing with the Beatles. I'm not saying that was the only reason they took off or whatever, but Pete Best was their original drummer. They dropped him to get Ringo. Yep, and you know, so I, 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 I do see that if you, you really do have to have. A, an amazingly solid drummer t- to really succeed. Yeah. So, and I mean, I also, I also think this is this is so random, but I also think that is part part of the reason why, uh, like I said, this could be really random. But Alan Holtzworth, I know I'm going to throw that name out there, and has nothing really to do with yes, but he played with Bill Bruford. Yes, he did. But with Alan Holtzworth, I don't think that guy in his entire career ever played with a bad drummer. Billy Cobham, Bill yeah. Bruford played with yeah. Chad Wackerman, played with tons of incredible drummers. And he's a great guitar mm-hmm. player, but he's very successful with with a lot of the drummers that he played with. So yes. I could see that being a portion of why his career was so successful as well. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I, I could definitely definitely see that being the truth. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. That is a good, um, yeah, it's a good thought. And golly, uh, Bill Bruford, man, just... Holy oh no! Smokes, and there are some moments on this record. Oh my oh gosh, my gosh. dude! Oh one of my, my one of my absolute favorite things. One of my favorite things about this record. I never even finished my whole thing when I was talking about my why why the Yes album was my favorite. We were talking about like fragile, but in comparison of of close to the edge as well. One of the one of the other things though, it's literally like an Easter egg hunt of musical embellishments. Like you're you're on this. All of a sudden, you'll just like pick something out. You'll be like, "Oh, that was cool." And like Chris Squire like, just did, did something. You hear that? Did you hear yeah. that? It's literally this Easter egg hunt on every instrument. It's like, well, did you hear that thing that Steve Howe just did? Yeah. Because there's so many like, but it's brief and it doesn't like yes. overshadow anything oh, else. Yeah. That's why I say Easter egg because it's not like it's not you know, it's not there forever. Overwhelming. It's not there yeah. forever. It's very it's not brief. Su- yeah. Sometimes it's they'll just thing. It's like, oh. like one of the one yeah. of my favorite things about uh in in perpetual change like Tony K doesn't come in on the one. When he brings in the, right? He doesn't come in on the one, which is so like, just seems like that would be the typical thing to do. But he waits yeah. a beat and then comes in with the chord. And I'm like, yeah. oh, like what was that little thing? And some of like Hal's little solo picking stuff that he'll just throw randomly in there. And some of John yes. Anderson's little, you know, emotes and stuff like that thrown around in the back of the mix from like the background. Right vocalist and hat or uh squire just has it's it's ridiculous you can fill a whole bag of easter eggs with all the uh, stuff I mean, that he's doing on this record yeah. it's insanity squire's part of the reason why i really 
enjoy. And I really love him because he really expanded the role of the bass. He did, man. From the early days. The and Rick and Yeah, the way it Gosh. sounded. Because even in their previous two records before this, the first two, um, that was – he still had that sound. It was still this kind of really thick, crunchy, trebly yep. bass that he played with a pick that was just really intense and – that was just so much different than some of the, the warmer bass tones, which are great too, but it was just very different. And it really showed that the bass could kind of stand out a little bit more. Yep. I um, will say. While still being rhythmic, you know. I will say, I listened to, because I own the original press for, uh, on vinyl. And, and I have a pretty, I have a pretty, pretty good uh, vinyl setup. And I was listening to this record and I was comparing it to the 2008 master because I couldn't find any of the original masters anywhere. I mean, you can buy them somewhere, but it's it's a lot of money. And so I was just listening to it on the vinyl and then comparing it to what I was hearing digitally. And there's not a whole lot of things in terms of arrangement that they changed, but you could definitely tell that the crunch is not nearly as prominent as the vinyl mm. on the record for the bass portion. I don't know why that's the case. Maybe because when they shot it to the American market, we actually had this conversation in our previous episode, or maybe it was the episode before it was the Power that, Windows one, Power Windows episode, yeah. where we were talking about uh, the American market and how bass was as a, as compared to the UK. Yes, and this yeah. was an American success. So right. I feel like I was thinking about that as I was listening. I was like, man, Drew would actually probably really enjoy the original masters more than the later masters because of like that crunchier bass tone rather than oh, that yeah. thick warm. I would love yeah, that. Yeah. So anyway. So good. So good. Anyway. Um, well, I think we're going to move on to a section called Delve It or Shelve It. Oh, man. We got we to gotta jump in the Delve It or Shelve It. Do you think Steve Howe looks like an older, like, uglier version of Eddie Redmayne? Eddie Redmayne? Yeah. Why am I not? The actor, Eddie Redmayne? You know what I'm talking about? You know? Oh, yes, the guy I from Fantastic do. Beast. Now, yes, yes, or yes, the guy yes, from yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you yes, sorry. Like, yeah. It took me a second to conjure up an older. older. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, this is Steve Howe. Yes. And this is the. Yeah. Amazing musicians, but man. <laughs> I'm not going to say. I'm not going to oh, say. Oh, man. I basically um, did. So, um, hey, you know what? Anyways. Before we get into this first Delve moment, well, we first got to say this. We haven't heard each other. If you haven't uh, listened to or don't know what this seg- segment is, uh, we just bring a couple of uh, Delve It moments and Shelve It moments on this record. So we we each chose three different moments on the record that we find as like parts that we love as well as a Shelve It moment. Eh, something that we could just, we would just put that on the shelf, not necessarily can, take it and run yeah, with it. can do without could do without that. Um, but I have a quick fun fact before we jump into this. Have you ever noticed? I don't know if you have the album cover in front of you. Have you ever noticed Tony K's foot in a cast? No, I have not. I'm about to show it to you, literally. I can't. I know, obviously, everybody who's listening right now, yeah. I'm going to have my finger on it. Um, if you're looking at the album cover at the bottom part of the, of the photo. Wow. Tony K's, That's hilarious. Tony K's foot is in a cast. And in my nosiness i was like i wonder if anybody else knows about this online of course they did they had a couple of shows that got canceled in february of 1971 because of rioting in france they were leaving france heading to the uk and they had a couple of more uh shows get canceled after that why because the van got in a head-on road collision 
and Tony oh, wow. K broke his foot, which also happens to be the day before this photo was taken. Wow. Fun that fact. That is a fun fact. Fun fact. Also, just on the topic of the album cover, it's a horrible album cover. Oh, it's a horrible That's album how you know cover. this album's really good because it got it had a lot of success with one of the the worst album covers I've seen in my life. Oh, it's in, it's insane. It's a terrible. And I mean, you know you know the history cool. about it. I mean, there's just like 30 minutes before a show, they all look pissed off probably cuz they just got in a car accident and he just threw up a 1000 watt light bulb, grabbed this little thing from the side and they just took the photo of it. I mean, it was so not planned. Terrible. So not planned. Yeah. And I don't terrible. I don't know why the green. Um I I, I, I don't, don't I don't know. know, but even the back of it, it's like I don't, yeah. I don't know, man. No, it uh, doesn't make any sense. They they weren't thinking about it. They they didn't care. They didn't care. But thank God that the care. music was okay in the album cover. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Know. That's how you know it's good is because again, it's bad it's album artwork with good album. music, you know. With good but so. you know, yeah. Anyway, so uh, another thing to note about the Delvet or Shelvet is that we do not know each other's Delvet moments. Um so this will be a surprise to both of us as we delve into. Do you want to go first or me? Sure, I'll go first. You'll go first. All right, here we go. I haven't heard this. And I'm the one cueing it. First Delvet moment. Yes. The organ that comes in right here. Yup. Oh my gosh. Just listen to this. Yeah, this is where the the organ really shines on the record it's so grandiose in the best possible way uh, i love the percussive you know, the the kind of the thump. yes it's so it's, simple it's Did, such a a heartbeat it, yes it's and not that's a, what i think john yes. anderson was actually going for uh in an interview he was talking about like no i want this specifically and bill did it perfectly yeah oh that's, man that's so that's good it. That's so the, good. The next section's really fun, but oh my gosh, it's it makes the the organs here just really shine. That's that's a part in this record where it just it makes everything so much bigger, but still allows the vocals to take the center stage and have the acoustic guitar strumming along with the lighthearted, oh hippie sounding progression. It's absolutely sublime. I love um, it. I, I another reason this section is so good is that it's concise. It's chanty and sing songy, but it doesn't last too long. Oftentimes, like I feel like hippie hound, sorry, hippie sounding sections can feel like they're going to last forever because <laughs> they're so repetitive. Yeah. But once the organ comes in, they only sing the background vocals of all we're saying is give peace a chance twice, and then it just does one more run through of "Cause it's time, it's time and time with your time and its news is captured," and then we go into that new section. So it doesn't seem overly self indulgent. It's just a phenomenal section of this record. Anyways, that's my first delve. That's you. fantastic. I would agree with you. That's a Again, again, like, I don't know. If if Wakeman was a part of the band, would that organ be there? No, exactly, exactly. Or would it be something totally sci-fi? He might have done, done organ, but he, he would have just done some flourishes that maybe just didn't really fit, you know? Yeah. Like, no, everything there was just makes was where it needed to be. That makes sense. So, all right. That's a great moment, dude. What is, oh, gosh, it's such a great album. All right, I want to hear your first one. All right, here we go. This is my first Delvet moment i delve this i don't know if that's proper you, you would totally delve I totally that. delve this here we go yeah that's not proper english but <laughs> that's okay it is for this show all right here we go it is for this show yeah. oh and one peculiar point yeah. i see yes as one of many ones of me as truth is gathered 
It's not the first time. It's the second. Because I love some of the piano flourishes. And the way this yeah. builds. The way this builds. How Bruford goes from the top of the ride to kind of the edge and starts crashing it a little bit. Yeah. That is the that is just the epitome oh, of delicate. So pretty. Yes, the such epitome a delicate of delicate section. It accentuates what, I, and I, that's what I'm part of the other reason why I love it so much. Is it accentuates how, and you used the word lighthearted. I actually I wrote down the word light footed. Actually, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Light footed and melodic, the band yeah. could be, and and how 100%. sparse. Like that's one of the things that I love about this record so much is how the, the large dynamic range, loud to quiet, thin to wide, sparse to layered, like it goes yes. everywhere. Yes. And um, and this is one of those moments that um, the way that Bruford's not necessarily putting a backbeat, but it's more of like these little like embellishments, like these little ride yeah. cymbal bells the and little, the yeah. and yeah. the harmonics with 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 how and the 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 piano, but still you know, but even Squire was is just sort of leaving it down there um, and not necessarily taking something kind of uh, yeah. wacky or strange. It just it was no, simple. Totally. And and I love what I also love about it too is that it feels so palpable with the combination of John's voice, which feels very in nature, kind of light and yeah. So I love that. I just love how that and that's that's uh, two two minutes and thirty six seconds into uh, perpetual change, um, which is mm-hmm. uh, I I couldn't say if I had a favorite song on the record, but I mean there are a yeah, lot of moments of perpetual change that is yeah. So good. So that is my first Delvin moment. What do you think? Amazing. You like that? I love it. Great. Here we go. Number two for Drew. Yesterday, a morning came, a smile upon your face. Oh, so good. Oh, my Lord. Oh, yeah. Oh, so good. Here we go. Here we go. It's going to build. But so... Oh, so good. Oh, and here we go. It's kind of stuttering. Oh, yeah. The build does in just a second. Here we go. Oh! The guitar. Uh-huh. Anyways, oh, that's basically it. But I also had to get a little. Gosh, I had to get that scratch in there. Time. Oh, bit. it has to be in there. That's fun. It's Anyways, so yeah, the good. delicate high bass combined with Anderson's vocals there, and, and and at the very beginning, there's not much of the drums during this part. There's only like a kick drum, yep. giving it a much softer dynamic compared to the raucous sections immediately before and after. And the acoustic guitar is gently strummed in the background. And then at 743, it kind of builds like ever so slightly. Like the the, mm. the drums kick in, but it's not bombastic. It's still very subtle. It's still building. Like energy is building, but it's not zero to 60. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, oh, yeah. The, the, man. I know. My man, Bruford. The way. With those stutters. Know, little. Man. He's a freaking technician. It's amazing. Yeah. I I just love how that whole section builds. It's one of my favorites anyways that's that's seven minutes 19 seconds into yours is no disgrace i find it really interesting that we've now chose two moments that are a little bit more delicate rather than bombastic and sort of grandiose oh, yeah. and like there's a lot of um uh 
sounds it's like a combination of playfulness and seriousness yeah sort of like they're yeah, yeah. anyway it's so good all right your second all moment. right second delve moment here we go <laughs> What in the world? Like, what? What is that? What is that? Someone likened this to like a, a ship swaying in a storm. This it's, whole section here. Is, you hear this? The organ? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like these waves are kind of pushing and bullying this, this, this ship in the middle I, of nowhere. I yeah. have never heard anything like that before. Ever, yeah, and and honestly, I, and one of the one of the reasons that, or not one of the reasons, but one of the things that I absolutely adore about this little section is how Bruford makes the drums, quote unquote, slide like that. Like mm. when, I don't know if he's, I think he's using a hi hat. I don't know if it's a if it's a studio trick, or if he's just somehow getting it to just sizzle enough as they're sliding. But whatever he did. It sounds amazing. It's incredible. It's yeah. so unique. And how doing the thing, it's like, again, it's like that playfulness, seriousness, but this is like a fun section that is just kind of yeah. like, what in the world? And it just makes, it makes me smile listening to it because you're like, yeah. what is going on here? But it's yeah. so brilliant. Totally. So brilliant done. And that is in uh, four minutes and 40 seconds of Yours is No Disgrace, the uh, opening track to the record. So. Uh, so for so good. for the next, I'm gonna actually because I always want I want to end on a positive note. So I'll do my shelve it and then which we don't have a, a, a clip of, and then my last delve it. Yep. Just to end on a positive note, the shelve it moment for me. <laughs> this is this is like the entire last section of Starship Trooper, and it's hard for me to say because I I really love the first really? half of Starship Trooper. And I even like how this this section builds and some of the fun solo stuff that Howe does towards the end is fun. But overall, the section is simply too long. It is simply too long. It gets to a jam band kind of feeling and it meanders a bit too much. They keep grooving on the exact same chords and progression for almost four full minutes. Again, there's some cool stuff in there. Buford does some cool fills. There's a big buildup with these broad organs in the background and there's some fun stuff with the guitar work with Steve Howe every now and then. So I don't like detest this section, but um, it just feels like it goes on a bit too long. And if I notice that something has overstayed its welcome, then I think that's a definite shelve it for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It makes sense. Anyways, that's that. I had a, um, I had a hard time uh, finding a, a shelve it moment for this record for me, honestly. And uh, and mm-hmm. I was thinking through it, and I was looking at some of some of the different sections and like how how long they were going. And uh, I think the the biggest thing, and 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 I don't know if it could have been done differently. Maybe it could. Maybe it could have been shifted in a, in a way where it could be uh, could have been better. I understand though that progressive rock can be jarring on purpose. Um, right. But the section uh, of perpetual change where they switch immediately. To the, the entire song portion of that. Now, that's it's this is like a half shelf, honestly, 
because I, no, I, I totally get it, and I'm actually, I, you know, I dig it. I get, I dig some of the jarring moments in in progressive rock music, but um, with how well it was strange because how well that if you look at the the kind of the form of the song, the, how the sections flow is amazing um, for a yes. song that's so chaotic and so dissonant and so polyrhythmic. It, mm-hmm. it is really well done, and then it flips to that perpetual and then but the yes. way they get back to the chorus section yeah is so awesome and i was like so there's that one moment it's just that one section where they flip yes and um yep. and so that's kind of like a half shell for me i dig it but also at the same time i could i could have seen how maybe they could have done something just as cool as those right yeah. there you are right yeah um and so, anyway, that was like that's a that's a half shelf moment. I get it. So, I get it. Anyway, all right, my last Delvet moment. Last Delvet moment uh, is ironically from the same song that I just shelved one of its sections, but another section, <laughs> Starship Trooper, amazing song. Uh, four minutes and sixteen seconds in. Just listen to that hi hat keeping time in the background. Just the, the yep, just to close the foot. Yep, just to close. <clears throat> Big crash. Wait, let the vocals build. Mm. And the bass. Add in. Long broad diamonds. And here we go. Here we go. We get into a nice groove. Nothing too crazy though. But you know, the bass is swimming. That's the best way to describe it. the bass is swimming. Yep. Coming up for air and coming back down. Just swimming air, through, swimming through the up waves of vocals. Absolutely. Listen to those vocals, man. My gosh. Yeah. There's this nothing like is, John Anderson. Is, no. This section is kind of the epitome of the harmonious vocal sound that made Yes so identifiable, oh, I think. absolutely. But... Man, it's simply magical the way everything briefly cuts out except for the like the vocal suspended above the guitar arpeggios with kind of the flanger, like at the very beginning. The very beginning. Follow. So good. And the little, the, yeah. yeah, the, the guitar effect that I, he uses yeah, as well. I, is Yeah. And like I said, the hi-hat closing, I love it so br- – I love – that the fact that he's keeping time with literally just this tiniest and super subtle, just little while there's like, you know, the vocals are really kind of taking center stage, but you have that in the background. Oh, that's so I just kind of went into it while it was playing, but I love that section. Brilliant moment, man. All right. Okay. Here is my last Delvet moment. Anyway, I love this for different because of how different it is. I think from the other parts of the record, um, the music. So, like, what Bruford is doing is just oh mind-boggling. Yeah, um, there's not necessarily he's not necessarily trying to keep this smooth. So this is kind no, of like an extension. Uh, or almost kind of like a lead-in, because this is the song that happens right before Perpetual Change. And I find it really interesting how this is the song that's right before that, 
that is probably the most chaotic um, on the record. But Adventure is almost like a peek in the curtain of what's to come later part of the record. The choices that these musicians are making to do the things that they're doing. Bruford not playing yeah. a backbeat, but more of keeping things very syncopated and very almost random at many times. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah. As well as Tony Kay just playing the way I was talking to you, in a way that I said it earlier before, before we were on the air, was <laughs> it sounds like a cat on piano. Like it's just a cat yes. walking on a piano. Um, it's just yeah, very it's kind of bizarre, very bizarre, very random. But also the way that uh, Squire is sort of kind of hitting some accents, and the way he's sort of leaning into some certain, yeah, he's like leaning into some certain notes and and different accents and everything. And um, I find it a very uh, strange and eclectic session section. Uh, and honestly. I really dig it. I really dig yeah. how or how um, bizarre it is, and yeah. how unique, and how they were kind of pressing a little bit towards let's let's try this sort of thing, and uh, and I also just sort of like the the analogy of sort of peeking through the curtain before uh, perpetual yeah. change comes in, and I include it all the way till the fade out because I love how that song fades out and then it just. Just comes right into that. Oh, it's just so good. So anyway, that is a a minute and fifty three till the end of adventure. And so, um, yeah, that is my that is my last Delvet moment. Very nice. Yes, thank you for joining us, everybody, on our uh, segment of Delvet or Shelvet. So many great moments on this record. I mean, that's really are, what it kind of comes there down are a lot. to. And um, you know, I think uh, I, I listed some things kind of as my general consensus, or not general consensus, like my personal consensus of this record for like the reasons why I love it so much. And I put them in like bullet point form, just because it's just okay. it's just kind of like listed. Like here are the elements of this that I just really enjoy about this so much. Um, it's got rock elements with like grace notes of funk and swing jazz all at the same time. It's playful and serious. It has lead and choir theatric edge or elements, kind of like a kind of like a Greek tragedy kind of thing. There's like a lot of call and response with uh, the vocals okay. and certain things getting panned. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. polyrhythmic chaos. There's dissonance and avant-garde sections. We we spoke about this before, but a large dynamic range. Um, yes. And, uh, and I also mentioned this as well earlier about the, like the Easter egg hunt for almost every instrument and, uh, which is just so great. And I had a question for you and maybe this could be the last question, unless you had anything else before we close out, but what, because of the many elements and things that are going on, I had, I, I asked myself this question. I honestly didn't really come up with an answer. So I wanted to ask you, maybe we could have a brief discussion about it, but what makes this album so cohesive uh because i was trying to find like mm. a common dna thread throughout all of the songs and there's not much but it feels like the first thing that came to mind was the organ honestly um because everything else is kind of all over the place i think um and maybe yeah, maybe you know I, I would i would maybe agree with that um, maybe solidifying it a little bit but i don't know i just figured i'd pose that to you 
Yeah, it might be that, yeah, the fact that the organ is so, yeah, it is kind of a, a simpler element in there, which you kind of need to balance out all of these really, really um, striking flavors, you know, that you've gotten here from, yep. I mean, you know, Bruford, but I think Bruford is also part of that. I think Bruford helps make this cohesive because while he does a lot of really cool stuff, it's really not out of this world and distract. It's not distracting mm. from it. Um I think it's because they all know when to kind of lay back um, and do it. I mean, even the the Chris Squire stuff, which is complicated, it's not like, I don't know, these really quick, insane licks that like Getty Lee will do in a fill or something, which I love. Again, not hating on that at all. But like, it's it's still smooth. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. They all just really know how to... How to <laughs> How to really I know. showcase a, a really interesting, unique personality without the need to show everything and everyone else up, especially on this, rec- particularly this record. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah, it's just grounded, but still really, really interesting personalities in each of these instruments that you can clearly hear in so many different sections and, and little moments of this record. So I don't know. I think it's it's a bunch of stuff, but I would definitely say that the organ's a big part of that. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's just yes. Sometimes it's just the band. It just right. is. It's the collaborative. There's nature. no reason behind it. It just yeah is. It's the collaborative nature of the members and how they decided yeah. to write this is is it's 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 the band. What made it it's so the, cohesive? Yeah, the group. Yeah, we would like to thank everybody so much for listening to our podcast. These are our prog notes for the Yes album. Hey, if you uh, enjoyed the episode, maybe you learned something new from the episode, like I did. Subscribe and follow us with the link in the description. Uh, you can also find our there. You can find our Discord community, social media pages, and also our Patreon. We'd be very grateful if you wouldn't mind helping us out to continue to do more of these episodes. Also, don't forget to follow the new Spotlight feed if you haven't done that already. What is Spotlight, Destin? Well, Spotlight is our offshoot Prognotes podcast where our other host, uh, Rogan, interviews bands from all over the world, progressive rock bands, old and new, and uh, you get to hear... Uh, more from them uh, personally from the artists a little bit about uh, their history and their approach behind their music it's really great it's a, it's different than our show but I find it to be really interesting to hear from the artists themselves before we close uh, Drew would you mind telling us what record we are checking out for episode 49 yeah um, that will be uh, a Stephen Wilson record this is the raven that refused to sing and other stories oh. it's gonna be fun It's going to be fun. So join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Prog Rock. We will see you all on Discord. Thanks. Thanks.